Last weekend was a bad weekend to be a goalie. This weekend's a bad weekend to be a turkey. Hello and welcome back to Puck University. I'm your host, Tim Williams, joining you this week from up in the Lehigh Valley in Pennsylvania. And joining us, as always, from in the Boston area, our New England correspondent, Chris Lynch. What a weekend for scoring across the college hockey landscape this last week. I mean, we joked in uh, a little bit before we actually got underway the uh, the great Russell Crowe line from Gladiator, are you not entertained? Because you take a look at anything that involves Penn State and realize that Michigan can score as well. Providence apparently has, uh, has a wicked touch in Western Michigan, apparently likes scoring themselves. Uh, it's it, Are you not entertained? I, I mean, I certainly am. And I think that there's plenty of reason to be so unless you're the teams that uh, just had a very bad time defensively in which there were plenty, plenty of those this weekend. I guess we'll start with Michigan and Penn state. Michigan scored 12 goals over the weekend, scoring six times, both on Friday and Saturday. They took away a split from Pegula ice arena, losing in overtime on Saturday. Michigan needed a weekend like this. They had been on the slide a bit. They'd, would have been nicer for them to get the sweep, but of course Penn State is flying so high right now that losing seven to six on Saturday night just sounds about right for a Penn State game. But Michigan a little bit back on track after this weekend. A little bit. I mean, Penn State nine two and zero so far. I mean, and they don't take that much of a hit in uh, their spot in the rankings. But I'll tell you the thing that Michigan probably needed more than anything else was some stable goaltending. They gave, they gave Strauss Mann, S-T-R-A-U-S-S-M-A-N-N, which is on the short list of my favorite names in college hockey, alongside with Angus Cruikshank, who is a forward for the uh, New Hampshire Wildcats. There's, there's, there's some great names all over the place here. Anywho, so... Uh, they gave Mann the job in goaltending over Hayden Levine. And, well, he gave up seven goals on the second game, but he still made 33 saves. So that was at least somewhat promising. And Penn State just had periods in which they got 17 and 14 shots, respectively, in the first and third. Both these teams can put up some wicked, wicked offense. And to come away with any points out of Penn State is a pretty remarkable feat and a pretty good job, all things considered. But in that third period of the first game was particularly their best period so far, maybe of the whole season with four unanswered goals. Josh Norris, Jack Becker, and then Jack Slaker, one on a power play and one on an empty netter to make it the final of six to four, which matched Michigan's record at the time. So definitely a lot good to note about that, but I still hold my concerns about Michigan being their somewhat unstable goaltending and man did a decent enough job considering that he was playing in the shooting gallery of hockey Valley, but I still hold that as a bit of a concern for Michigan moving forward is for them to settle down their goaltending and more importantly, try to whenever it's not Penn state, try to settle down the, uh, the defense in front of you so that the goaltender can actually see everything he's supposed to save. It was one of only a few matches between ranked teams this weekend. Not a lot of matchups that were all that close, at least in terms of polling coming in last weekend. 
But the biggest one of them was, of course, Denver hosting Minnesota Duluth, and they split. And because of that split and because St. Cloud State was able to take care of business in a non-conference weekend for them, beating Bemidji State in both games, in your in your USCHO poll, for whatever it's worth at this point in the season, and it's really bragging rights and very little else, St. Cloud State is the number one team in the country. I mean, it makes sense. They took care of business. Duluth ran into some trouble. I mean, Duluth played a tougher opponent in Denver, but, you know, I could – it's whatever at this point. November polling will be entirely forgotten by the time we turn the calendar to 2019. But a good showing, really, for both sides, especially for a uh, uh, for a Denver team that really needed a good showing, and they continue to get solid goaltending. That first game, the the first game on the Friday night, and that ended up being a two to nothing victory. Duluth dominated enormous stretches of it. Denver didn't get more than six shots a period in in uh, that first game. They got six each in the second and third period. They got two in the entire first period. The only goals they got, a power play goal, which Ian Mitchell scored about midway through the second period, and an empty netter for Jared Lucas Savages. So, And also, by the way, they lost Brett Stapley for a game misconduct for checking for behind. And uh, they served uh, a bench minor for too many players, which means that there were some points where they were just not being particularly careful. That first period, there wasn't any scoring, but there were a ton of penalties, nine total between the two teams. The second period, there were only two. The third period, there was only one. So it's your classic case of the refs call the game pretty tight early on and things loosen up a little bit as the game moves on. And, trouble for Denver was that they couldn't depend on that goaltending to get them through the entire weekend because they gave up 45 shots to Duluth and ended up losing four to three with all four of Duluth's goals coming in overtime. excuse me coming in the third period and they got the winner 52 seconds into overtime. So I still have my concerns about Denver similar to Michigan. They're giving up way too many opportunities for uh, the opposition to get goals up on the board they're giving way too many shots up but in their case they actually have an elite level goaltender in Devin Cooley who can bail them out but you can't lean on him to bail you out and make 30 38 and 41 saves and get consecutive wins especially in the NCHC that's just not a long-term feasible solution also in the for what it's worth category but Maybe this one's a little more important early on in the season. If you look at the conference standings right now, in the NCHC, you'll notice something really surprising, and that's who's at the bottom of the conference. In a tie for last place in the, in the NCHC, at 1-3-0 and oh in conference, North Dakota, and they're there after a really rough weekend where they were swept by Western Michigan, a team that they should have been looking to pick up points on. Yeah. For all the teams that we talk about from the NCHC for being threats, we 
uh, hype up Colorado College as being a real uh, real opportunity, even though they're currently one five and zero with. Five, they're still just one game under 500, but the problem is that conference schedule is so brutal that you can slip up every so often. Uh, Miami, we don't hype up that much, even though they're 9-5-0. and And Nebraska-Omaha, they're 500 in conference. Western Michigan was a team that had quite a significantly good offense from last season, but they had a problem keeping the puck out of their own net. I think they were, they were fourth worst in the nation last season, and they go up to Grand Forks on the first night and get a shutout with uh, with Trevor Gorsuch putting on a really good showing in net and the rest of that blue line putting up really good work in front of them. And then, and then the next night, they return to what they do best, which is shelling goaltenders, and they got six goals on the road. And it was at one point six to one before North Dakota got a Rhett Gardner power play goal with 11 seconds left in regulation. So that was a really bad weekend for maybe college hockey's proudest program, just for the, the quality of their building, the quality of their fan base and the quality of, uh, of how well they travel, how well they take care of their guys, and the number of NHL players and high-level NHL players who've come out of there through the years. North Dakota might be the proudest program that the sport has to offer, and that was a terrible weekend for them. Nice to see Western Michigan making some noise, though. The big matchup back east was in the ECAC, where they don't have a lot of weekends where – One team plays the same team twice, and you saw that with Quinnipiac, who started by hosting Col or started at Colgate at Class of 1965 Arena, and took a five nothing victory. That was Saturday night. On Friday night, they beat Cornell in the biggest matchup back east all weekend, four to two. So a good weekend for Quinnipiac, and also in the ECAC. Not a very good weekend for just about anyone else. Cornell did get a win against Princeton. Princeton lost to Colgate and then Cornell. So a really rough weekend for the Tigers. But Quinnipiac, who we've talked about a little bit, they're having a great early season, and they kept it going last weekend. Yeah, that's that's another on the list of – they're a much more recent rise into being a force. They joined the ECAC in 2005, and Rand Pecknold has made that program a consistent threat. They're 8-2-0 so far this season, and it was a pretty even game against Cornell pace-wise. They only got that last goal and three unanswered in the third period on the road at Lina, which – I haven't been there yet, and I'm not particularly close to the Cornell fan base, but for what I know and from the history of people going up there and coming away empty-handed when going to Ithaca, to get three unanswered goals late on in that game, I think there's plenty for Quinnipiac to be happy about coming off that weekend. And then going over to Colgate, truth be told, the Raiders have – there were not many high expectations for them coming into this season, particularly when Colton point decided that he wasn't going to return for his junior year. He, he might've been the most talented goaltender in college hockey last year and might've been 
uh, among the best possible um, faces for any bit of any program. Even still, though, and they, yeah, they got shelled by by Quinnipiac five zip, but two one victory against Princeton, a team that can skate you out of the building if uh, you let up any opportunities. Mitch Benson doing a really nice job and uh, holding holding himself to task when Matt Kellenberger was the only person who got a goal for Princeton. Not any of the big big guns for uh, for the Tigers. You know, not your Ryan Kuffners or uh, or anyone like that. It's it's a, it's a young guy who managed to get the only offense on on the board against Colgate. So. Nice to see them actually seeing uh, seeing some continued good efforts. And Princeton, I mean, they went up to Cornell the next night and got out shot 25-20. And Cornell is a weird team to pay attention to because there have been some nights this year when they look every bit like their championship caliber form last year. And then there's other nights where it's kind of difficult to recognize them, like that third period against Quinnipiac. So... I'd be a bit concerned about the consistency that that team puts out there and the uh, the powers that that, uh, that they can show because they're a quality team. They have the talent to make some noise, but I guess I'm just waiting to see what they uh, what they can do consistently. Quinnipiac, no concerns for them. They, well, very few concerns at least. They'll be one of the teams to watch for the remainder of the year, and I did not expect that to be the case at uh, season preview time. Speaking of ECAC teams that we might have to wait and see a bit with, you had a good look at Harvard this weekend as they played Arizona State, a team that you've also been waiting to see quite a bit. What did you make of that weekend? Because that was a very interesting pair of games between visiting Arizona State and Harvard. Okay, so I only saw the first game of the weekend. So I saw the Friday night game at Bright Landry, which was – that felt kind of strange. For one, seeing Arizona State is a team that exists and just trying to process that the team with the uniforms that I've never seen before is a Division One college hockey team. I'm sure it's what people felt when seeing the Vegas Golden Knights in the 2017-18 season. It's this sense of I intellectually grasp that they are a team that they exist. They are skating and scoring goals, and those are their uniforms. But it looks strange seeing that. You know, it it, it just looks strange seeing Arizona State. And they underwhelmed that first period. Harvard outshot them 14-2 to and won 4-1 in the first night. And their postgame, their coach Greg Powers said that, and I think I'll paraphrase a little bit, we didn't just take a couple of shifts off. We took an entire period off. They righted the ship for the second and third period, but really Harvard looked like they were in control for a lot of it. And I guess for a college hockey purist, quote, restored order to uh, the college hockey world with giving Arizona State a loss and showing that the old-timey schools still have uh, still have ways to you know, control themselves. But... There's also the next night, which ended up being an, an overtime game. And Arizona State, well, they got outshot again because Harvard has a wicked offense. They really are a team to be reckoned with on the 
uh, on the offensive end and just on the power play, 36.4%. The, they're number one in the nation for successful power plays. The only problem that they have is that uh, is that they've also struggled with defensive stuff. So, again, I wasn't able to see the second game, but from what I could tell, just seeing some of the highlights and going off of some bits of the box score, the first night Arizona State looked a bit gassed and a bit tired. The second night they looked like they had their legs and they skated very well with the team for big parts of it, but just got outshot and depended on Joey Dacker to get them a win. Harvard, yeah, this is a wait-and-see category for them because I think there were three departures from last year's team that have major ramifications on this team. One's obvious in Ryan Donato because of how talented he is and how Harvard doesn't have that level of offense to work with. The next one is Paul Pearl, who's behind the bench, who's been credited with a lot of Harvard's rise. He's now an assistant coach at BU, which he's having his own work to do over there. But the other departure is Merrick Madsen to the pros in goal. And he was a money goaltender for a number of years at Harvard. And well, they're trying to figure out uh, how to help out Michael Lackey and Cameron Gornett as the primary goaltenders for Harvard. And they're having a bit of difficulty adjusting. It's my continuing concern over how important goal. The reason I mention that position so frequently is because you can have an outstanding offense, but a weak defense and a weak goaltender can cost you games almost by themselves. Because everyone else likes to shoot and likes to score. It's harder to play defense. It's harder to keep pucks out of your own net than it is to score them, I think. And I don't think there's any team that can attest to that more after this last this last weekend than Merrimack, who took on Providence and they did not have a good go of it. Providence scored 14 goals in the weekend in a big sweep of Merrimack. We've talked about how Hockey East is kind of weird this year. But those teams on top early on, they have to take care of business. And Providence certainly did that this weekend. And really across the board in Hockey East, the teams that needed to take care of business when they had games and there weren't all that many full full slates in the conference, they did. Providence took care of Merrimack handily. Northeastern gutting out a one nothing game with Vermont where – just seemed like it was a tough one on all sides and kind of everyone holding serve in hockey East with the exception of Boston college, who takes a tie to a new Hampshire team. They're going to be, they're going to be looking back on that one for a bit. Yeah. So let's, I'll start with the Providence Merrimack series. And we alluded to this after the UMass series that they had in which they outshot and outperformed. Uh, they they really outperformed UMass for much of that series, but still ended up losing. I think this is a case of order being restored in which, by the way, for all of our talk about how Lawler is this difficult, brutal place to play, I'm going to assume that Providence came out with eagle-eyed focus because they outshot Merrimack 44-11 to 11 on the road. That's a 4-1 to one shot differential on the road with Merrimack never getting more than six shots for any one period, including a 15 to one shelling in the first period. I'm going to assume that Nate Lehman must have worked his team in a ridiculous way for practice because that kind of effort 
is indicative of a we got embarrassed now we have to go and earn back some bit of respect i mean they they had through two periods providence allowed five shots for 40 minutes that's a remarkable amount of work it does still lead me to have some concern about hayden hockey because he allowed two goals on 11 shots faced which is not a good number just once they got some pressure on him they found ways to get some goals but still those kind of numbers and it's weird seeing merrimack struggle goaltending wise because drew vogler and craig pantano are normally very solid very sound goaltenders but eh, neither of them really had a very good showing for the whole weekend and by the way that second night hockey 17 saves made five goals allowed and it's five goals on 22 shots one night and two goals on 11 shots the second night I can forgive. I, I can note that Providence outplayed and they won these games both very deservedly, but I got to be a little bit concerned about maybe the caliber of shots that hockey's getting or some where he's just letting in a softie every now and then. I have to be concerned about him moving forward, you know? Yeah, that's going to be a thing to watch. And goaltending, well, it matters on every in every conference and every game, but it's really going to matter in hockey East where there's, there's not that much separating Providence. And they had that tough weekend with Massachusetts Amherst. You've got Northeastern still lurking back there. That's a tough conference. You're going to need to be able to pick up every one of those games. And that's where those games against the Merrimacks of the conference are so important. You have to win the games that you're expected to win because those tough ones, they may or may not go your way, even as you mentioned, when Providence had a good night against Massachusetts Amherst, they still walked away with a loss. And if that's going to be the case, you have to take care of business. You have to beat those teams you're expected to. And to give them credit, I'm absolutely certain that Lehman rode his guys harder than normal because 44-11 to 11 the first night on the road at a place where it's really difficult to get good shots and good opportunities because of the just how cramped the building is and how cramped the ring feels. So a really good showing for Providence on the weekend. I'll slide over to that Northeastern game because the only goal that was scored, Zach Solo, a guy that you've mentioned consistently as being a successor to scoring-wise, and Jim Madigan has mentioned and said this as well in uh, his pressers, that Solo has the potential to be a really good scorer in college hockey. And it's a, it's a classic, classic gritty grindy game in up in what I'll up in the Northland where remind you that Burlington is just a stone's throw away from Quebec. And when I covered the UMass Vermont series last year, the UMass fans had a very funny chance in which they referred to Vermont as UMass Canada, which those people out in Amherst are, uh, are very hilarious. But it's a nice, good quality physical game, and there were enough penalties to make some noise, but nothing that was you know out of the ordinary. Maybe Joseph Feck serving one for a misconduct, which came as a result of shooting after the whistle on net, which... That's uh, that's an that's an automatic whistle going against you, but it's just one of those games where they had to win. And despite Vermont's record, they're only three and six. That building's brutal to go up to. 
that that building is brutal. They, those people up there care about their sport and care about their team. So that's one of the harder buildings in Hockey East to go to, not just for how far away it is, but for how uh, how loud and how on top of you those fans at the gut are. Well, just to show you how deep college hockey really is, we talk about some of the better goaltenders in the sport so often, and there are so many of them that we hardly ever mention. Stefanos Lekas, who's been Vermont's, he's been a wall in net for Vermont for a while now, and often on some teams that aren't so good, he'll make them dangerous night in, night out, and that's a lot of that Northeastern game. I I just as a fan remember thinking, well, get out of the way. Just just go ahead, lay down your arms because the rest of the team was on its heels, but Lekas was keeping them in it, and that's been something he's had a habit of doing at Vermont. So, even on the teams that are expected to lose a lot of games, you've got a lot of talent in guys like that. I mean, you could say the same thing about Merrimack. You could say that about the deeper recesses i'll say that about new hampshire as well because they didn't have a very good weekend at all uh they had a tie against bc in which they really should look on that with some regret they were leading two to nothing going into the third period period and let bc off the hook and are kind of allowing the eagles to climb back into the uh uh you know back into contention they're they've only played they've played five hockey east games they're three five and one overall for their whole season three one and one in hockey east so far it they're following the habit from last year of being not very good outside of conference and then uh picking up once the hockey schedule gets underway and unh let them off the hook that New Hampshire team has more talent than being a one in six team. And I did, I didn't get to see that BC game. I did see them on Sunday when they played in Mullins against UMass Amherst. And they had their opportunities. They had some really nice chances and some good, uh, some good looks. And Mike Robinson is a good goaltender. He's a draft pick of the, of the sharks, but they just gave up way too many penalties. And, UMass had four power play opportunities. They scored goals on three of them for four of their goals. And the, and the only other one that didn't go that uh, the only goal that wasn't on a power play, John Leonard turned in a highlight reel opportunity, in which Robinson made the initial state save, but the puck rolled through his legs and sat on his skates. And Anthony Delgaizo tapped in the loose puck for the, uh, for the four two that ended up being the final, but UNH is a better team than a one, six and three record. And they're a team to pay attention to for just the kind of you know physicality that they'll play with. They can hit you and they can hurt you, but UMass just showing that they have all the skill in the world. Meanwhile, BC being let off the hook, I think. A little bit, but that's still a tie against the team. They're going to hope they beat because based on their out-of-conference schedule and how tough – the high the bigger teams in that conference can be bc can't afford to let their guard down on a single night not not with the hole they've dug themselves so far and you have a really weird thing going on in the middle of the hockey standings they're three one and one they have seven points they're tied with those seven points with 
UMass Lowell, who's 3-3-1, and Boston University, who's also 3-3-1. These are teams that, well, two of them expected to be a little better off at this time of year, and then there's Lowell, who just keeps grinding along. Yeah, I look at Lowell as being a complete wild card. Is They had their run in 2017 when they won the Hockey's Championship, and they absolutely should have been in the Frozen Four in 2017. I'll I'll go to my grave thinking that they were a better team than uh, the Notre Dame was, and I'm sure they will too. I'm absolutely positive that uh, those guys who played on that 2017 Lowell team will look at that game against Notre Dame on that Sunday afternoon up in Manchester and puzzle about how they didn't end up beating them. They kind of struggled with that all year last and had a down year. And they came into this year with still some remnants of that, that championship team from 17. And it's a really strange kind of, kind of setup that they have They're overall they're six, five and one. They, they have some real talent. They have some, they have some decent opportunities. Tyler Wall looks like he's regained form. This realistically probably should be a better team than uh, than what we've seen for not small stretches of the uh, of the season. But they'll be a threat. They'll be in the playoffs. Uh, is, you know, the last three teams get knocked out. Lowell is going to be in that picture, and you know, they're a program that you don't really want coming into your building. BU and BC, they're both better than their records right now. They're both better than you know, hovering around 500 because they have the same overall record at 3-5-1. and one. BU's just played more games and lost two more Hockey East games than, uh, than BC has played. So, yeah, it's a weird, weird conference as of right now. But can't say it's not entertaining because it certainly is. Yeah, it's it's really it's become a deeper conference throughout the years, and I think this is where it's really showing its teeth. Where you have even a couple teams that people expected might make waves early on in the season, they still might very much make waves. Connecticut and Maine sitting just below those teams with five points, so it it's a deep conference. It's a dangerous conference. It's not what it was a few years ago when it was seemed like it was dominant on the national stage, but it might be more fun. It might be a little more wide open in that regard. So it it's interesting there, but maybe the biggest surprise, at least coming out of last weekend, is we don't talk that much about the Atlantic. It's hard to really get a grasp on that conference. It's up and down. Teams bounce all over the place, but we both expected Air Force to be in charge of that conference. They're currently in second place, which is nothing to sneeze at with 12 points. But up at top, how about Niagara? And how about the weekend they had in taking that top spot while American International not only swept Air Force, but shut them out both nights? And then in on Thursday, Niagara beats Canisius 5-2. to two. On Saturday, nine to six. How about that for a score? I saw that box score. I saw that when I was at Aganis for the BU main game on Saturday night. 
And I just looked at that and I thought that's kind of ridiculous. And and the, it's not like the first game was lacking for goals or anything like that. It was a five to two thriller. Well, it was, and and mind you that these are teams that don't really like each other. I ran into so last year I covered a game at Bentley where uh, they hosted Canisius at the old Johnny Ryan rink uh, at the Jar before they moved into their very nice new building up at Bentley. And uh, this was a team that uh, I overheard them say that there are some colors that you're not allowed to wear at uh, at different schools for the rivals that you have. You're not allowed to wear purple at Canisius because that's Niagara's color. And Canisius up in Buffalo, Niagara is not that far away. So wicked, wicked showing on the, on the first night, a 34 to 31 shot one for Niagara and a consistent theme of first period, get two goals. Apparently a two nothing lead is actually the worst lead to hold because they surrendered it. And then they got three unanswered in the second and two late on fairly late on in the third. It's a pretty interesting uh, dynamic to that game. The first night. And then the second night, I, the, the box is just kind of goofy. And it's one of those games that inflates your score inflates your scoring stats and kind of deflates your uh, defensive stats. And there's really no, uh, no real way around, uh, uh, around the kind of impact that those kind of games will have skewing your opportunities. So great job, Niagara. And I, I don't think anyone expected them to be at any point in the, in the season in first place in their conference, but air force, Oh boy, uh, that was that was rough, and they're showing s- sort of similar problems to what they had in the NCAA tournament last year. They had some very fortunate bounces against uh, St. Cloud, and ended up getting the four to one or four to two victory in the tournament with a couple empty netters to finish things off. But that second night against Duluth, they struggled for offense. And I think we're starting to see that really come to haunt the Falcons right now is that they can play very good defense. They can play very, very strong in net. And Zach LaRoque uh, is a decent enough goaltender. And Billy the Greek, Billy Christopoulos can play in net as well. But they just haven't had anyone who's stepped up and taken the lead on the offensive side to you know increase their opportunities maybe they're playing too much within a structure and maybe they need to loosen up a little bit and play a little bit more free flowing on the offensive end which is kind of weird for me to say that a military school needs to loosen up but it might need to because that air force team yeah they're second place in the conference but they're 0-2 outside of conference with the caveat of those out of conference games being against denver and colorado college which are two very good teams from the best conference in the country right now. And I think there's plenty of reason to be at least nervous moving forward if you're Air Force because you need to find some offense when you get laid on into the tournament. They have the opposite problem of a lot of what I've been talking about. They just they didn't have any offensive answer for what AIC threw at them this weekend. 
And we talk about wide open conferences, but the Atlantic is really anybody's game. Right now, Niagara leads with 13 points. There's Air Force right behind them with 12. Then American International and Army tied with 11. And RIT, one of only two teams in the conference with a winning overall record, is just behind them with nine points. So this is a deeper conference than we might have thought. And there are going to be a lot of tough nights for a team like Air Force that might have been expected to be on top of a conference that we usually see as weak. But this year, it's wide open. And how about American International with that big weekend, getting those two shutouts? They're right in the mix. The team that is often jokingly referred to as Mr. B. And there they are. I mean, mind you that there's some there's some games play discrepancies in the standings right now, which are making things look as they are. Um, Niagara, Air Force, Army, and and, and uh, AIC have all played 10 games in conference. RIT is sitting at fifth place in the conference with nine points, but they're 4-2-1 and one overall. That's because they've only played seven games in conference. And you can imagine that as their seasons go along, that that might balance it out. And I could certainly see RIT rising up the rankings. And kind of a similar thing for Mercyhurst as well. They've only played six games, and they're only two points back of RIT. So it's a conference that's had some interesting scheduling funks and bounces. The disappointing team so far in uh, in the Atlantic is Canisius. Four seven and zero, three six and zero for uh, for conference play. So, and we expected them. There was pretty universal expectation that Canisius would be uh, in second place behind Air Force. And Air Force, though they have their struggles, are mostly holding up their end of the bargain. Canisius is uh, just struggling and they're having a hard time. Maybe the I don't know exactly what to make out of the Golden Griffin season so far. It'd be nice to see them get a bit of a turnaround, particularly with them hosting the Atlantic tournament at the Harbor Center this upcoming uh, this upcoming March. So for whatever it's worth, it, it's a really, really interesting conference with some funky scheduling flukes. And I would love to see some of these more smaller market teams get to uh, – uh, get to climb up. I'd like to see what Niagara could do. I'd like to see what AIC could do for uh, competitive stuff moving forward. Mostly, though, I just want another postseason matchup between Air Force and Army. Those were fun last time, and I'd like to see more of that moving forward. That that was good defensive physical hockey, and I like that. Well, and Army's right there in that mix with 11 points. Shift, shifting over to this weekend, I think it's pretty clear what the big weekend is. And that's the one that's not happening here in the United States. It's happening in Belfast, Northern Ireland. It's time for the Friendship Four once again. Union has to come into this as the favorite, if not the prohibitive favorite. They take on Yale in the early game on Friday. And then in the later game, it's Boston University and Connecticut, two conference foes playing one of those weird Hockey East non-conference matchups. Yeah, it's one of those really funky setups in which they're going to be a part of uh, 
it, it it's a, it's kind of funny the way that they do their scheduling, all things considered. But you're right in your description that Union should be the overall favorite in uh, in this whole thing. They're 12th. They're the only team that is ranked. In fact, they uh, out of the USA Today poll that I can see here, and out of the USCHO poll. Uh, they are well. They are not the only team receiving votes. Boston University in the USCHO poll has three. UConn and Yale are uh, receiving nothing as of as, as of right now. So, I think you're probably right in your uh, analysis that they should be the favorites. They're one of the best teams in the conference and and ECAC that's proven to be more competitive than than I think we really expected them to be, but. BU and UConn are just kind of weird teams. I think they're more talented than uh, than their records are. I know BU is more talented than their record. And UConn, I don't know exactly what to make. By the way, mind you that this is only the first of two really long trips that UConn is taking this year. There's this trip to Belfast, and then over January break, they're going out to Vegas. So they, they better get used to these these sorts of long uh, long plane trips. But yeah, this is from every description I've ever heard from every SID who's gone over, from every fan who's ever gone over, from every journalist who's ever gone over there. This is one of the best weekends of the year for the sport. And I kind of wish I were able to go over, but I've got family obligations back here stateside. So I'm excited to get to see it. And by the way, Friday, 10 a.m. is when the First game begins at the SSC Arena in Belfast. That's between Yale and Union. So if you're uh, awake after being uh, after chowing down on some turkey on Thursday and want something to do in the morning, you've got college hockey at 10 in the a.m. On, uh, on Friday afternoon, which is pretty nice. It's a good way to get the weekend started right after Thanksgiving. And, of course, you know, I think BU comes into this with something to prove, especially after last weekend where they took a split with Maine, something that might be a bit disappointing to the Terriers. They, they've they had a rough up-and-down start to the season, and coming back with, well, with a trophy would would really help them and help them get back on track and help them build some confidence in the first year under Albie O'Connell. Yeah, that second game, the loss that they had against Maine was wildly disappointing uh, outcome for them because they were they had some stretches where they really looked like they were in control of that game, and Jeremy Swayman kind of stole stole the game a little bit with a forty save effort, and Chase Pearson is a wicked talent that uh, doesn't get talked about in the hockey East scoring threat, but uh, you know, it's just one of those really interesting positions where I think Maine is also a team to pay attention to for, uh, for hockey East moving forward. But BU, I mean, I thought that BU would be the number one team in conference this year. And so far that's not proven to be correct, but they've got a golden opportunity to make some noise, particularly in the hypothetical case that they move on to the tournament championship game and end up playing Union in the hypothetical case, that's a program that they've matched up very well with over the years. And I think off of play style, that's a team they can absolutely play with and a team they can skate against. So 
I don't know. I just look at that potential matchup and I see a very, very quality opportunity because, I mean, they get any two wins or any one win and they should be happy with that. But if they manage to get two of them and particularly if they beat Union, which I think Union will beat the Elis from Yale, I, I think they will at least. BU beats Union and gets themselves going in the right direction. You're right. That absolutely could spark a... Uh, a rise and uh, an improved performance late on in the year go, or in, midway through the first semester going up uh, in Albie O'Connell's favor. Looking through the rest of the schedule, not that many games against ranked teams. Of course, the big one, Providence going to Magnus Arena to take on Denver. Denver looking pretty good after that split with a incredibly good Minnesota Duluth team, but Providence has been in many ways one of the class teams of the East so far. So this will be a great matchup of teams that in the latest USCHO poll, it would be number nine visiting number seven. And the gauntlet continues for the Denver Pioneers. And mind you that Providence, they also had a very bad weekend. Their schedules have actually kind of mirrored each other. Both teams had poor performances uh, two weeks ago. Denver going on the road to St. Cloud, and they didn't look that good. And uh, Providence with a home-and-home home against UMass, and they had two very frustrating losses in which they were both winnable games for the Friars, and neither of them ended up going in their favor. So they mirrored that part. And then the next round of it, they end up moving – uh, they end up going to and from to Merrimack and hosting them, and they look completely dominant with eagle-eyed, determined focus and defensive prowess. And they're facing a team where you need as many offensive opportunities against that goaltender Cooley as you possibly can get. So I could absolutely see that being a wicked, wicked fun weekend. I'll tell you the uh, the Saturday game that I'm really interested in. There's a ranked game between, or um, there's a game between Princeton and UMass. I keep thinking ranked, but I think Princeton has in fact dropped out of at least the USA Today. They're 18th in the USCHO, so it is still a ranked matchup between number 18 and number four. With, by the way, UMass receiving two first place votes, which I believe is the first time in their program's history that they've ever gotten any first place votes. It is, and this is the highest they've ever been ranked. So monumental so far for the Minutemen. And of course, the other matchup between two ranked teams is a Big Ten weekend where Penn State goes across state lines to play Ohio State at Value City Arena. Number six versus number five. This is going to be something. I mean, we might have buried the lead on the weekends that we're paying attention to because just for if we're for whatever we care about rankings and for whatever is you know worth paying attention to, that's really your matchup of the weekend. Both teams can. I should say Penn State, we know the style that they play in. Really, everyone enjoys the kind of style in which they play with Evan Barrett and Alex Limoges as the two leading scorers nationally, both with 19 points. And uh, Nikita Pav- uh, Pavlicev, I'm very sorry for uh, 
mispronouncing your name if uh, if I did so. And by the way, Liam Folks isn't that far behind on your scoring races. It's a quality opportunity, so they they can play with that kind of pace and that kind of uh, you know that kind of offense. Ohio State. They're not exactly known for uh, for goal scoring. For goals four, they're just about middle of the pack. They are tied for 29th with Merrimack. They have 29 goals this season. They've only allowed 22, and revelation in net for them. Tommy Napier has gotten seven of the games uh, that Ohio State has played, and he has a 9.58 save percentage as the nation's leader. The second-place goaltender right now, is Henry Johnson from Bemidji State with a 949, almost nine full points higher. Uh, or nine, like nine hundredths of a point higher is uh is uh is Napier. And they still have Romeo in net for them for you know it's a strong unit that the Buckeyes can roll out in in the nets. So that's a fun series. It's a style, it's a contrast in styles which makes it for just the contrast the, maybe the most interesting. And I'd love to see how well Ohio State handles an offense like them and how Penn State handles a defense like them. I think part of the reason we bury the lead with Penn State is over the last month or so when we're doing these what games to watch moving forward, it seems like Every week, it's going to be whoever Penn State's playing and whoever Denver's playing. These are going to be great games. They have great games against ranked teams every single week, it seems like. So so it, 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 I don't know if we're burying the lead so much as we're just used to the same refrain. And speaking of the same refrain, the, a game that we've seen a lot of times, but it never gets old, coming to Madison Square Garden, this is going to be a good one. Harvard taking on Cornell in the kind of rivalry that only hockey can make what it is. I mean, these teams play other sports against each other. They play football against each other. But really, for the history of college hockey, these two teams own and operate in kind of very interesting segments and circles. Harvard, for a while, drew in the elite American talent, while Cornell drew in because it's so close to Ontario. Cornell drew in the big time Canadian talent. You see Ken Dryden as the embodiment of what Cornell has drawn in for its entire history. Um, it's a really fun rivalry. It's a historical contrast, and it, it's an old timey Ivy League rivalry in which, overall, for schools and uh, contrast of cultures Yale and Harvard are your big Ivy League rivals overall but for hockey specifically it's Harvard and Cornell that is uh, that is your rival and Cornell has made a habit of playing these kind of games at Madison Square Garden and they drew very very well for their game against Boston University last year and I am very certain that the Cornell fans will turn out in full for this second for this game against Harvard they always always come out and cheer against them in loud and big numbers I hope that Harvard sends some fans down there and I hope that the Harvard alums who live in New York City go down and cheer 
it would also be nice if one of the New York City area schools were to look at this and think that's pretty cool and try to play college hockey themselves. But you have a couple of other hurdles to jump over for any New York City team to play it. But I'm just excited that I'm going to be there on press row for that game, which means I get to say that I was at Madison Square Garden for an event, which is pretty, pretty sick. Yeah, it's it's quite a place to be. It's, of course, hallowed ground in sports and really as well in music, because one of the names they have in their rafters is they have a couple bands up there. I believe Fish and Billy Joel both have their names in the rafters at MSG. So it's just a historic venue. And you mentioned it. It's always funny to see how college sports in general address New York City because of course in basketball MSG has a college sports history it used to be home to the greatest basketball tournament anywhere the Big East tournament but of course the old Big East no longer exists sadly thank you very much Boston College we all we all appreciate what you did we know what you did don't forget but- to blame Miami of don't forget to blame Miami as well they were I mean, yeah, I'll join in your BC hatred, but for just, you know, there were a couple of other factors. Syracuse was no help either. So I miss the Big East. I miss that old building. I miss that old tournament. It was actually the best college basketball has ever been. It, It really was. But outside of that sport, whenever college sports seem to address New York, they run into this weird vacuum of, well, where's the nearest team that we can get people in New York to care about? And of course, with college football, that's never really happened. They've tried a few times with Rutgers and to a degree with Penn State. And of course, Notre Dame travels everywhere in football, but they've never been able to create much of a foothold in the nation's largest market. And with hockey, Well, it's a little easier because you have the Ivy, so you know you're going to have some alumni in New York. And Cornell has, well, they have a huge hockey history. They're not that far from New York, although you wouldn't call Cornell an NYC school by any stretch of the imagination. They're still, they're within the state, and they have a huge presence. They've played a few games at MSG before. And it's becoming a bit of a college hockey tradition to go down there once a year. So it'll be nice to see this game. It will be. Um, those people do. I mean, whenever these teams get together and play a game in uh, at Harvard, Cornell fills up big segments of the stands. And by the way, so for just travel distance to get to Cornell from Madison Square Garden, it's a four-hour trip. Uh, to get from uh, to get to and from the uh, the cities. In fact, the Albany schools are actually much closer. So RPI and uh, and Union are your close are your closest schools that are actually in the state of New York. And I believe Princeton is your closest college hockey school to New York City. The good news of that is that uh, Princeton is a very fun and very exciting team. And so if you wanted to market college hockey to New York City, you could look at Princeton. The the downside of that is New York does generally have kind of a disdain for anything that comes out of the state of New Jersey. And that's not just imaginary. New York genuinely has a a bit of big brother syndrome when dealing with the, uh, the Garden State. So I'm just thinking of ways that you could market it. Cornell is your best team and your most 
storied team. And there's a lot of people in that, in that city who have Cornell educations, who have Cornell degrees, who are probably your people that you're going after the hardest to get your attendance. And you're, and also it's Thanksgiving weekend. And there's a big number of people who go to New York city for the Macy's day parade and stay around for the weekend entertainment. It's a good weekend for college hockey to get a foothold in and a good opportunity to capitalize on trying to draw some of the entertainment dollar in New York City, which there is a lot of options to spend it on. But that particular weekend is a good opportunity for college hockey to try to market to this city. And I think that brings me to my last point, which is only kind of tangential to college hockey, which is we're recording this on Wednesday, the day before Thanksgiving. Undoubtedly, a whole bunch of you are out on the roads. Of course, be safe. Of course, if you're flying, be patient because nobody likes being in those airports for very long. You're not alone. So just be patient and everyone will get through it. It's, you know, and travel safely. I'm wishing you all the best friends, family, and fun, and a lot of food, of course. But why is there nothing, and I mean nothing, on television? the night before Thanksgiving. We all get together. We're usually done traveling by nighttime. We're all with family. It's not that everyone's going to gather around the television and stop talking, but how is there nothing that's on in the background the night before Thanksgiving that's just the thing you put on? Because everyone's in their homes. You would think that by now there would be some kind of tradition. And I... I challenge any sport to get that going. Um, truthfully, I doubt you're actually going to be able to get anything like that. It'd be nice to see. Uh, it would be a it would be a nice opportunity to get to see. I mean, I know that the Celtics are playing are playing a game against the Knicks tonight, so we'll probably. I mean, we'll pro we might have that going at my, at my family's place. I'm going up to New Hampshire after we record this, so we we might stream that. But truthfully. I think it's probably a good thing that you turn off the television and you don't have anything going on in the background because we're so plugged in, in and uh, so locked into the television sphere and the digital sphere. And mind you, I totally understand the irony of saying that on a podcast of any variety that we sometimes every so often need to unplug. And I think Thanksgiving is your golden opportunity to unplug, to have a couple drinks with family, have some good food, catch up with people that you've not seen in a while. And we have enough distractions as is. It would be nice to see college hockey maybe try to capitalize by getting, I don't know, something on Wednesday, on uh, the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. It would be nice to see uh, some sports things so that you do have some bit of entertainment going. You're never going to match the the tradition of football on Thanksgiving Day that that that's signed and approved and you know that's guaranteed you're never going to match that but it'd be nice but i don't think it's really needed because we do all need some opportunities to just unplug and be around our friends be around our families without the distractions of the digital sphere of the bloggers just make sure you listen to puck university before you shut everything off and then shut everything off for like a day or so and I'm sure there are some people out there just thinking, 
man, you guys must have really nice families because I can get in a room with them for five minutes and I can't wait for something to come on. <laughs> you know, it, it is that time of year. And again, wishing everyone a happy Thanksgiving and a great relaxing Thanksgiving weekend. I guess before we go, I should also ask you this, Chris. It, it's not a hockey question, but it is a sports question. Tiger or Phil? <laughs> um see i have many biases in favor of phil because uh my dad actually managed to get golf lessons from phil at one point and uh got an autograph from phil on a on a cap that uh, was given to my mom and phil has always been my favorite golfer so i'm biased in favor of him so i'll go with phil I think I'd have to agree. And also, this is a gambling-based event, so it's right in Phil Nicholson's wheelhouse. As someone who's covered golf, and you'll say the same because you've covered golf as well, Phil Nicholson casts, it, the way he's at an event, it's like he's holding court. And of course, seeing Tiger is just something to behold. If if he's ever at a tournament that's coming through your town, you might want to go and and book off a day just so you've seen him and you can say you've seen him. But Phil, it's just, he seems like he has more fun out there than really any pro athlete I have ever seen. And after as long as he's been on tour, that's really saying something for those of you that are going to watch that match. I hope you have a lot of fun. And again, happy Thanksgiving weekend from, from us here at puck university, Chris, what are you working on this weekend other than going to Madison Square Garden and eating turkey? And how can people follow you? <laughs> I mean, that Madison Square Garden trip is a pretty not small event for me. Uh, getting to be at the world's most famous arena is always a, a, a privilege every opportunity you get to. Uh, the only game I'm doing is I'm going to Durham to cover UNH going hosting Miami of Ohio. I really want to see what the Red Hawks look like. I want to see if UNH can improve uh, off of what looks like better talent than what their record has put out. And uh, that's the only other game I'm working on for this weekend. You can follow me on the, uh, on the Twitter at C-C-L-Y-N-C-H wall. That's C-C Lynch wall, all in lower cases. You can follow me on Instagram at C-C Lynch 16, the number one six. And you can follow me on both Twitter and Instagram at Tim Writes Sports. And of course, when we're talking about following, please follow this podcast wherever you get your podcast. And if you know anyone that loves college hockey, tell a friend. We're out there. We'll, we'll gladly take questions if anyone has questions to send in. This has been Puck University. We'll be back next week. Have a happy Thanksgiving, everyone. And as always, keep your head up and your hits clean.